Welcome to the Jerry T Podcast. I'm joined by Dave Shields and also a fancy plus one this weekend. Also have Matt Costa, who was my roommate last weekend for the RC. And uh, unfortunately, Dave was not there. What do you have to say for yourself, Dave? I mean, I think I have a pretty valid excuse, but I am a pretty no excuses type person. So um, (laughs) I was disappointed to miss it and certainly was jealous to see all of the sweet hangs um, and excited to bring Matt along now. He might be stepping in for me for a few weeks as um, dad duties take over. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I I did go to Atlanta under the impression that you were going to be there, Dave. But I guess I guess this all kind of worked out. Empty promises. Well, yeah, Dave, I guess since, you know, you're having a kid being born, uh, we we can forgive that this time. But we'll see. Anyway, uh, Matt, for folks who don't know you, I guess, how would you describe yourself like in in the ideal terms? I want to know what you want people to think of you as. Uh. I guess I would describe myself as a retired magic player. I don't really know. Um, I mean, I played a ton of competitive magic for more than a decade, which is as long as I've known both of you. And like, I would say pretty consistently, honestly, up until COVID um, and, and have been just kind of getting back into it over the course of the last year. And, enjoying it and enjoying how it's bringing all my friends back together and are are you like in the same spot as dave basically where you have life stuff going on and you just try and find the time to play like how how much are you trying to play magic i guess uh well i don't have any kids so uh yes though I think, I think I think dave and his wife would probably take issue with me describing myself as in the same spot as them um but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm married. I bought a house this year. I have uh, a full time corporate job in the same way that that Dave does. But I also have have plenty of time to game, which is not always all spent on magic either. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, my ideal way to play magic would be to go to a big tournament once every like eight weeks. And the way the system is set up, there's actually fewer of them than that but uh i i do what i can to try to get to play those and in in the meantime are you like following magic weekly like are you playing weekly challenges like dave is or what does that look like i am i would say i'm i think i heard dave on a recent podcast kind of describe that he's much more likely to play magic on the weekends which is why he plays all the challenges for me, it's kind of the other way around. Um, so, like, if I'm if I'm playing Magic randomly, it's more likely that you'll find me in a at a league at eight o'clock on a Wednesday night or whatever than it is committing my whole Saturday to a challenge. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it comes and goes. If I have something to be preparing for, I'll I'll play a lot. If I don't, I'll play when the format is interesting to me you know i think i'm much more likely to be playing if there's a draft format i like but um i I feel like i keep up enough like i could always tell you what what the good decks in every format are i pay enough attention to know that do you know how you and i met because i Um, don't so i don't know 
I don't know if this is for sure the first time we met, but I have a recollection of, I, I think this is before they were even really called Opens, but there was a Star City tournament in uh, Boxborough, Massachusetts, which is in the middle of nowhere. And you were coming up um, to, to hang out with Jason Ford and play in that tournament. Um, and this is, and, we end up at Maddie Gems. Yeah. We end up at Maddie Gems. Um, and like, I was going to drive back home to the next day. I think I was still in high school. Um, and you and I ended up, I think staying up essentially all night, just kind of like chatting, um, before, before I kind of like just drove home. Cause I had nothing to do the next day. Um, I, I think that's the first time we, we at least like actually hung out maybe we met before that yeah i i feel like i knew you or like knew of you at least before that because i i feel like it would be weird if we were that friendly staying up all night if like we just met that weekend you know but maybe not i don't know yeah you're you're probably right um i mean so i guess the the other key person in this is our mutual friend jason ford who is you know originally from Massachusetts like Dave and I are uh and then moved out to go to school in Minnesota which is where you were living at the time and he got to be good friends with you and so that's that's kind of where the original connection to all of this came from Jason was actually my original connection to Gottlieb as well that uh that yeah that that makes a lot of sense um I assume mine also I was I was thinking about Brian the other day because I um, I think I was telling you this while we were in Atlanta. I I roomed with him for a Grand Prix in 2010, which was one of my first Grand Prix's back after a little bit of a break from Magic. And I, I didn't know Brian at all, but um, we had some mutual friends and ended up having a really fun weekend and and getting to know each other there, probably around the same time. Yeah. How how about you and Dave? Uh, so. I don't know. I mean, I'll I'll let Dave jump in on this. I think the one of the first times we we spent some time together was in uh, at Pro Tour Nagoya. Um, we had sort of like known of each other, but we our our time playing PTQs in Boston essentially didn't overlap at all. So we kind of ended up just meeting uh, by coincidence once we both kind of got into ma- back into Magic at around the same time. Yeah, my first memory as well in Nagoya, in a hotel room, not too many people that I knew were recognized. And you and Chase were both there staying together and happened to be from the same state. And I don't, I, I had no recollection of you at all past like the Motley crew of Boston PTQ winners from that season. Um, and then sh- we spent some time in Nagoya together. And then shortly after that, ended up spending a bunch more time together. Yeah, my... I don't know. The, the way that I viewed you two was like if if you were both qualified or like, you know, both at the same event, you were just there working together. And it was usually you two as the core. And then, you know, maybe there's like uh, a Corey McDuffie in there or like some Bostonian people or whatever. But like if you two were in the same room, like you were probably on the same 75 doing the same kind of thing. And I just... Whenever I interacted with you two, it was always very positive. And we, we also played a lot of the same decks in a lot of instances. And I was just like, 
wish we could hang out more, you know? So finally yeah. getting to that, which is great. It's exciting. I, I remember like Matt and I staying relatively friendly past Japan. And then we met, I don't know, but was Baltimore a year later? Maybe not quite. And we met in the finals of a Grand Prix, um, which was exciting. I don't want to talk about it too much. I'm still a little <laughs> bit salty about losing that, losing that match. But a little. Um, yeah. So we meet in the finals of that Grand Prix. We're pretty friendly at that point, but hadn't spent too much time with each other outside of Magic. And then I started commuting into Boston for college and Matt was going to BC, which just happened to be directly in between where I lived at the time and where I was going to school. So for probably like a two or three year stretch, we had a pretty consistent routine of like, I would pick him up on the way back home from classes on Friday and he would come spend the weekend at my house and we would play magic or travel to events. And then I would drop him back off at school the next Monday morning. That rules. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was a, a great setup and, um, you know, this is a period of time where there was probably three or four other magic players, you know, Chase, who was mentioned earlier included who were like constantly in and out of that house that Dave was living in. So, there's just a ton of magic being played. We were going to something pretty much every weekend. Um, you know, I Dave, I will talk about Baltimore a little bit. Oh God. Um, I, I think it's funny because moments before disaster. There's there's a little bit of almost revisionist history around it, right? Because we ended up becoming such close friends who I think in in the context of magic were often associated with each other that people look back on that tournament and they were like, Oh, it's this grand prix where like these two guys who were, you know, best friends played in the finals of the tournament. But that wasn't actually really what our friendship was like at the time. We were friendly. We'd tested for a couple of pro tours together. Um, but like sort of becoming really close friends, especially outside of magic happened after that. And, you know, I think, it, it, but when people look back on that tournament, they think about it as like, oh, like, you know, the finals was two people who are really close friends. But at the time we were just like friendly, you know? Yeah. Dave told me that. And it was it was a real Berenstein Bears moment. If if y'all understand that reference. Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's the actual like? So there's some name for that phenomenon, right? I maybe I don't know, but yeah, for those who are not in the know, especially like non-US people, like there's this book series called the Berenstein Bears, and I would swear to you, and so would thousands of other people on the internet, that it was spelled S T E I N, and then you go back, you look on the internet, you find the books, and it's S T A I N, and it's like why wasn't Berenstein? But everyone says Steen, and it's like we all got our our memories replaced or something. It's so weird. And like, that's how I feel about this. I was like, no, absolutely. Like you guys were always friends. And I was like, no, not at that one. It's like, oh, all right. Yeah. And like, we were friendly, right? But we certainly didn't travel to that event together. We certainly didn't like, like we were talking in between rounds, but um, I don't think I had his cell phone number in my phone. If that's like a, a bar we want to use, right? For how yeah. friendly you are with someone. Yeah, no, that's a good indicator. Uh, well, Matt, to, to kind of round this out in terms of the like getting to know you and our interactions with each other, do you have any good stories about me or Dave? Uh, I mean, 
I, I I probably have a lot of good stories about both of you. Um, is there anything? Is there anything that comes to mind in this moment? Um, I so I I have I I feel like this is just what it encapsulates sort of like mine and Dave's relationship in playing magic is um there was a grand prix down in atlantic city that we were both playing in um but we were we were driving in two separate cars um i uh you know this is a deck near and dear to your heart jerry i ended up playing like a blue white red flash deck dave played bant hexproof which was the right deck to play for that tournament yep um I did better than he did, uh, but but I think I think we probably spent like while while driving separately in two different cars, we probably spent like an hour and a half of the drive from Boston to Atlantic City on the phone talking about sideboard cards. Just like we could have driven together and done that, but instead we just <laughs> infuriated presumably the rest of all of our car mates by doing it. In yeah, cars. I love that though. Yeah, that that's that like kind of encapsulates most of my memories. Like we traveled and played a lot of magic together during Delver eras and Blue White Red Flash eras. And we would typically like say like an eight hour radius was like our driving distance where we would be like willing to travel. We weren't really flying to these events. We would drive and there's quite a few. We were very fortunate to be in the Northeast. And we would argue for six hours about the last two sideboard slots and Basically, everybody else in the car every single time just wanted to kill us. Yep. And I mean, we were splitting hairs on some really different narrow differences, right? But that was just kind of like how we passed the time in the car. And this is something that like I noticed more as Jerry, you and I have spent more time talking with each other and arguing about things of just like Matt and I challenge each other's ideas on like a pretty aggressive front that somebody that doesn't participate in that on a regular basis might be like caught off guard by. But that's just kind of like how we problem solved or like came to conclusions together. And it's taken me a little while now that I've kind of been working with other people outside of my little nucleus to like realize that's not how normal people talk about things. (laughs) So then when they're witnessing it third hand, it's just like, do you just hang up? Like it's clear that you hate each other or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But like really like part of it was passing the time in the car, but part of it I, I really do think is that like the best ideas get challenged pretty aggressively. And if you can defend them and they still kind of like hold water after that, that then we knew we were onto something. So that was just kind of like how Matt and I communicated. And I think we developed a really good communication between each other, like really early on. And we were able to utilize that to like shortcut a lot of these conversations. And I think, you know, get ahead of the format in a lot of different ways. And then around this time, wasn't it like, you know, like one of you wins and one of you top eights or top 16s or something? And then it's it's pretty clear that, you know, like this is kind of working. Like, did that ever come up? Yeah, we, we had we, we definitely had a lot of success. Um, the funny part and weird part that you might not realize is we didn't actually work together for very many pro tours. We were on two different pro tour testing teams. No, I did. I did know that. I just meant mostly like GPs and SCGs, you know? Yeah. But our success rate and our win rate in those events was a lot higher. So maybe you could, and especially for me, right? I think Matt had a little bit more pro tour success than I did, but, um, I guess if you wanted to, you know, be funny about it, you could say that my success was really dependent on working with Matt. And when he went and worked oh. with a different team for the pro tours, the wheels came off for me. 
So maybe you are the one that needs your ideas challenged. Potentially. Much to think about. I just uh, came up with this phenomenon now, right? So I'm coming to this realization and yeah. having this aha moment. Like, yeah, this is real right time. Second, so uh, yeah, don't hold it against me, Matt. No, I mean, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think so. I, I was, you know, very fortunate to work on some pro tour testing teams, some really, really good players. You know, I, I played on the team that for a while was known as the Pantheon that had you know, John Finkel and Kai Bude, and then, you know, some more contemporary players like Reed Duke um, and, and you know, Huey Jensen, when he sort of got back to playing Magic, calling him contemporary in that context is kind of funny. Um, but at the same time, like, I feel like a lot of the most success that I had, even when I was playing with that team, was when I kind of went off on my own and maybe didn't play the team deck or whatever. Like I certainly benefited from all the smart people and all the good testing games and everything else. Um, but I think, I think I probably realized a little bit too late in my career that I just needed to like trust, trust myself and have understand why I was doing something rather than like follow other smart people's ideas that maybe I didn't like fully understand in the same way that I would understand is is that my in, own idea. Is that an intentional segue into the RC prep where you basically played my deck? Oh. Yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> like, I, look, I'm. I mean, I, I'm also in. A, I'm also in a different place now. I know. I know my. Uh, I know my limitations. Fair. Uh so. The the house for last weekend was me, Matt, uh, Adam Snook, Chase Kovac, and Austin Cook. Correct? That's five? Yeah. yeah. Jealous. So me, three mass heads, and my incredibly innocent, lovely friend Austin, uh, Patriot Fan 09 in the Discord, who got his car broken into the day after he got there. Just the, the absolute worst person to happen to. Everyone felt so bad. And then uh, still had not managed to get his car fixed by the time he went home, which is also a tragedy. But uh, the house itself was very good, very cool. Uh, we had people showing up and leaving at, at random times and everything. So, like, not everyone was there all the time. But, and like, not everyone was qualified either. I mean, Austin, me, and Matt were all not qualified. So most of our house was not Uh I guess Matt and I were kind of there because for a little bit, it seemed like Dave was going to go. And I think that had we known not, this is not placing blame or whatever. I still had a good time, but I think if Dave was just like, yeah, absolutely can't do this one. I don't think I ever would have planned for it, but it ended up being really good. And I liked our house. I had a lot of fun. I'm very envious of the house. And for whatever it's worth, in my own defense, I did put every effort into qualifying for this event and did not come remotely close. Yeah, fair. And had I been qualified, I likely would have gone. It would have been a little bit sketchy given the state of my, you know, 38-week pregnant wife. Um, but I think it, I would have been able to pull it off. But given where Christmas is at and then also how quick of a turnaround the next RC is coming up here, 
Uh, it just made sense to sit this one out. But I am very jealous. That house sounds very fun. And you guys can absolutely blame me for tricking you into playing Magic. And I will continue to aspire to do that more. <laughs> and, dude, I believe you. I truly believe you. So, Matt, for you, when you're not qualified, what prompts you to go to an event like this? Like, there are some side events and you have some friends that are going, but, like, is that just the crux of it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things for me. Um, the first of which is obviously the people. Um, you know, we we mentioned that Chase was in the house. You know, he's spent the lot. You know, he's for for people who don't know, like Chase and I have been friends since we were five years old. We started playing Magic together, and up until about a year ago, we'd never lived more than like an hour away from each other. Uh, he moved across the country to Phoenix last year. And so any excuse to go and hang out with him when he's qualified for a tournament is is good enough to get me on a plane and going there, kind of regardless of of whatever else is going on. Um, but also, I think this is kind of just the way I want to engage with the RC system right now. I don't feel super compelled to go play an RCQ every weekend. But if I fly to an RC, I get to play the LCQs on Friday. And if that doesn't go well, I get to play essentially two big eight-slot RCQs on Saturday and Sunday. And hopefully that's enough to to qualify me for the next one. So I, th- I think that's kind of just what I want to do from now on. Okay, cool. In- uh, unless you end up in the incredibly unfortunate spot, as Jerry did, of being qualified for the next one already and then not LCQing in. True. I mean, also, my LCQ experience left much to be desired. And I think that given that the next one is going to have a different TO, maybe the experience is different or whatever. But I personally would never do LCQs at the DreamHack thing while Magic is like the side event. Yeah, it's weird. It sounds like Atlanta. And again, I'm curious for you guys to share feedback. It sounds like Atlanta was a repeat of what happened last year in Atlanta. The only DreamHack RC I've been into was in San Diego. And I didn't have to LCQ, but I had a couple of friends that were there and were LCQing. And they seemed to be very well run and very smooth. And it did not sound like that was the case this past weekend. I'm happy for them. Um, I I think that I might have had like the worst experience because I had two separate things go wrong where after about five hours I played two matches and there's basically like snafus with like actually getting me into uh, an LCQ to begin with but then once mine finally fired I think mine was the only one that did this where like a judge just never showed up to start ours and so there were players up and down our row in our tournament who were just like calling over random judges every five minutes, basically. They'd be like, where's our judge? Where's our judge? And they're like, oh, you don't have a judge? I'll go fix that. I'll be right back. They'd never come back. So then five minutes would pass. Someone would call a new judge. They'd say the same thing, never come back. And this went on for about an hour almost, like 50 minutes where me and my round one opponent just sat there and just like played zero magic. We just sat there. That is absurd. It was LCQ number 13, lucky number 13. So maybe that's why. 13, and you were like there as the doors opened, right? Yep. Holy crap. Yeah, Matt played in seven? Yeah, I, I played in number seven, which was 
I mean, we, you know, we went and grabbed breakfast and got there maybe 10 or 15 minutes after they started queuing up and that's, we were already at number seven. Yep. So there's a lot of demand for these things. My hope was after the horror stories of Atlanta last year, they would have woken up to that a little bit and had these staffed a little bit better. But it seems like that's still something they're working through. Yeah, I mean, I to, to be clear, I do not think that this is the fault of the judges. I simply think that there were not a lot of them because even as you're playing these things, and I saw this in uh, specifically the 5K I was in on Sunday too, where it's like you call judge and you look around and there's just like, no one in the area because there just aren't that many on the floor period. And, you know, that's not super acceptable, not just for the players, but also for the judge staff too. Like they just have way too much work. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm sure like staffing an event on a Friday is probably harder than Saturday and Sunday just because of travel days and all of that. But I, I wonder if like the format and structure itself, like, creates additional overhead my my instinct is it does right running 15 different single elimination tournaments at the same time seems like a lot harder than running one or a couple of larger events that all start and stop at the same time yeah Yeah, don't the don't the european ones like i i could be wrong about this i i think they basically have like an eight round tournament the day before and everyone who goes six and two or something just qualifies that would be so much better. Yeah, I feel like that would be both better and far like significantly easier to staff and run. So I feel like the structure doesn't really set them up for success. Yeah, I agree. Because it's especially weird where like you have that burst of initial uh, like interest in those events when the doors open. But then once that burst fires off, it slows down a lot. So it's like you need a bunch of of staffing early on and then you need to like slowly cut people or whatever. And it's like, well, that clearly doesn't work. Right. So yeah. they are staffed for like the median amount of events that they have going at any time or like planned amount of events. And then when the doors open, it's like, you're trying to fire off like 15 of these things, 15 or 20, like immediately it's just not feasible. Yeah. That's an absurd number of round clocks. Right. I don't even really understand the difference between like running a single like 32 man pod versus running like a 128 person pod. And there's just like, you know, four people that five out instead of one. Right. So I feel like there's a bunch of things they could do structurally to get more efficient with it. But yeah, I don't know no, if they're true. thinking about it like that. No, you're absolutely right. So I don't know. But- Take me back before that. So last week, Jerry, we talked on the podcast about the format a bunch and then you kind of had a somewhat of an epiphany as we were discussing the format, I think even after we finished the podcast, just after. About- no, like we we mentioned Drake's like in the waning minutes of last yeah. week's episode. Yeah, and, and but you- I could tell when we hung up the phone that like there was a brain worm or you were on to something. Oh, dude, I immediately went to work. I I was up for many, many hours after that. And I think I... I finished the league I was in. I finished another league and then I was 2-0 in a league and was just like, I'm I'm done. Like we're here. I just need to like fine tune the numbers. I don't actually need to play any more games. Because my assumption was that Rakdos, specifically mid with a little bit of sack, but mostly grouping those together, because I think the same types of like decks and strategies are generically good against both. And then Phoenix and Amalia would be the big three decks. And then I was trying to work out like what 
percentage of the field those three decks would encompass because I thought that Drake's was pretty solid against all three. And I thought that number could be in the 60% range, which I think ended up being a little high. So I think the Drake's deck was more of a hard read situation. And I still think, yeah, for like any big event, you have to take like a soft read approach where, you know, if the field isn't exactly what you expect, you're not super uh, disadvantaged by that. But certainly like the initial list that I had, I was attempting to respect things like Blue Eye Control, Enigmatic Fires, like all these fringe decks, right? But uh, those, the fringe decks ended up being a bigger portion of the metagame than I expected. Interesting. Yeah, I have the stats here. So Rakdos was 15, 16%. Amelia was 12. Phoenix was 10. And then if we include Sack in that at five, that gets us to a little 20, 40. 32, 42%. Yeah. So not off by orders of magnitude or anything crazy, but um, you got no, the top it, three right. But The, yeah. the thing was, is like when, when I started writing down the numbers, I kind of assigned those values to them, maybe plus or minus like 3% to each. But I couldn't fathom what the other decks would be. Like, is there going to be 10% blue-white control? Like, that didn't exactly make sense to me. And I think maybe it was closer to that. But it was just like, what other deck is going to show up with greater than a a 5% representation? And I just didn't know. Yeah, the answer was blue-white control and Boros Convoke were the only other two decks over 5%. Okay. Oh, so... It was like super spread out. Yeah, very spread out. Have you seen the Frank Carson numbers? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, that that was the breakdown. Um, and then when you break it out by winning percentage, the the big winners for the event were Blue White Control, Enigmatic Fires, and Amelia Combo. Okay. Those are the three decks that had over fifty five percent win rates. Yeah. So I had. I certainly had blue white in fourth and Boros in fifth, but yeah, I, I guess I looked at blue white as maybe ten percent, like eight to ten percent, and Boros I thought at like six, and I guess I ended up seeing people who were playing Boros where I was like, huh, I wonder why they chose Boros, and then afterward I saw them saying things to the effect of like I should not have chosen Boros, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, Boros Convoke got rinsed really low win rate, but I left out what deck had the fourth highest win rate, which, to be fair, very small sample size, but the fourth win rate, highest win rate deck was Boros Heroic. Ooh. It's your baby. Yeah, which is has been my pet deck for the last few months. So, but, Matt, what, what, how, how did you end up on this, I guess? I'm skipping around in our... Uh, we'll outline here. Hope you don't mind. But how how did you end up on Drake's? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I played I played a little bit leading up to the tournament. Um, I think f- for comfort reasons and also just for kind of un- knowing that we were going into a relatively open field, I was debating between you know Rakdos, Blue White Control, and is it Phoenix? Which I think is probably a pretty common experience for someone attending this tournament. Um, uh, and uh, by the time, by the time 
we got to Wednesday night, I was I was pretty set on playing either Phoenix or Blue White Control in the LCQs. And and actually at that point in time I would have told you that Blue White was my front runner. Um and and not to not to hit too much on the the topic of the week on Magic Twitter, but I was having a really hard time finding cards. Uh and so um I I kind of it turned out that Snook had some of the stuff I needed for Blue White. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna register phoenix in the first lcq snook lands around nine or ten o'clock and if that lcq doesn't go well i'll i'll switch over i'll switch over to blue white control okay um so that's kind of where we were at before your message about drakes which i just checked was at 1 38 a.m on on thursday morning <laughs> yeah that was that was probably when i was like 2-0 in my league and i'm just like i'm in here's here's what i got you know, this is something that I'm reasonably satisfied with. So I, I did my best to do like a quick turnaround time, you know, but it's like, obviously that is not a great time to get a message. No. And, 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 you know, the funny, the funny part is I saw it and I, I kind of feel like I was there pretty much immediately. Um, You know, the, the Phoenix list these days, most of them sideboard some combination of the the fable plus crackling drake package as some resilient threats that that help you dodge graveyard hate and are also just sort of more more individually powerful cards in game post board games that are centered around one for ones um and so uh in a world where you expect there to be a lot of graveyard hate dodging dodging that entirely and just having the the fables and drake's main deck i i think is a juke that makes a lot of sense even in even in an open deck list environment um i think there's an even better better reason to want to play drake's um without i guess without burying the lead too much yeah uh okay let's let's back up a little bit to the the bnr announcement uh and and because i'm kind of curious how this affected people because my hypothesis was that 10 days is not a lot and i think most of the people engaging with competitive magic these days are more along the lines of have a job outside of magic and uh, i hope that they have some semblance of a life you know like partner potentially family etc and it's just like how how much time can you reasonably devote to testing for a thing like this just in general but then even when there's this bnr thing so close to the event and it really shakes things up too so just kind of want to gauge you know how much prep time you thought you had like was it adequate and uh you know how was the bnr how did it affect you and just in general, how do you optimize that time when you have other stuff going on? So I, I think this was an interesting one because first of all, they made an announcement of an announcement, which yep. is uh, a, a Wizards of the Coast trademark at this point. Um, But they pretty much said in the announcement that they were going to ban Karn. Um, it, you know, that I think Andrew Brown in in whatever you know youtube clip they posted like 
more or less said that. Um, and I think anyone who'd been following Pioneer knew that geological appraiser wasn't going to make it. So I think from that lens, like you probably knew about a week ahead of time that you shouldn't be spending too much time playing with either mono green or discover. Yeah. Um, and also that you probably didn't need to worry too much about those decks. Um, the copter unban came as a total surprise to me. Um, you know, but but it's also the type of card where it's it's been legal in the format before. You generally kind of know what decks it goes well in, and I my guess would be that over the course of the next couple months, people are gonna find some really sweet decks in Pioneer that have Smuggler's Copter in them that no one had for the RC, because for the most part, the things people played it in in Atlanta were honestly kind of boring right like shove some in Rakdos shove some in Gruul vehicles you know there's a combo deck based around reanimating a vehicle yeah it probably goes in there but like it didn't feel like any anyone was doing anything super um innovative with Copter at this tournament at least yeah it was very much just shoving it into old decks um so for me personally, you know, I I honestly probably didn't prepare as as much as I could have or would have liked to. Um, but in in the time that I did have, I think it was I, I spent a little bit of time thinking about more off the wall copter decks. You know, some mono black aggro stuff. Uh, I had a couple of lists of. Uh, <laughs> the like blue red and soul artifact deck which which i actually think is still probably pretty good written up um but uh eventually i just decided that that wasn't that wasn't the place to invest the time well what the hell man you're you're holding out on me i'm I'm over here like sleeving mono black aggro and and you had ideas and you just didn't share them well we talked I mean, we talked about the deck i didn't have i didn't have actual ideas i just i that was the best deck the last time Copter was legal. And it it makes a lot of sense that it would still be good. Yeah. Okay. Mono Here's Black a- Aggro, 13th place. Ooh, ship the list. Because I, I had this, this is Daniel Hall, right? Yeah, I don't have it up right the second I was looking at earlier. I assumed Jerry was going to be all over it. Oh, okay. Uh, All I did well, was a gifted Aetherborn check, right? So, Oh, uh, yeah, naturally. I'm, dude, I didn't even have Aetherborn in my deck. It's a Mutavolt deck. Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. I played in my Sign-In Blood decks, not my Copter decks. All right? It's fair. Uh, yeah, I, I had it built. I had it in my bag. And if I ever thought that Drake's was bad or whatever, then I was like, okay, I'll switch to this. Like, maybe it's good, but mostly I think it is, you know, fun or whatever. And that just never happened. I like Drake's. So get this. Uh, 13th place, Daniel Hall, four fairy dream thief. Yeah, that one's okay. It's And, and also four main deck deep cavern bat. Um, Love the so- bat. Yeah, if any, and and you know, he he goes all the way up to four gicks, four graveyard trespasser, two shieldred. So, if anything, it's like a little, maybe a little bit of a 
a slower mono black aggro deck you know yeah it's no- it's bigger notab- for sure notably missing is um you know knight of knight of the ebon legion which is i feel like a a staple in a lot of these decks so the one drops are just the blood soak champ and the fairy yeah all right all right Heartless Act. I can't get on board with that. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I do get on board with the Murex, though. Murex is brilliant. Yeah, I saw the Murex and knew you would like that. A uh, little little bit of an aside. Dave, did you did you hear about um, Snook and Chase arguing over, over the Murex and Red Black? No. So, so Adam Snook ended up registering one Murex in his in his red black mid range deck. Um and uh you know Chase felt it was foolish and and offered offered Snook a dollar for every time he activated it. Just a free roll. Yeah, just a free roll. Um I think the final count was four. No, it was six. It was six. It was six. Wait, so my okay, I love all of this. Three, three was in one game, I think. So that was one of my questions, was how many were in the same game. And I feel like you should get exponential value at that. Well. That's a negotiating opportunity for the next time. My other question is, I know Snook didn't get very many wins in the tournament. Did he stay in the tournament past when he was eliminated? Just to, just farm to get chase. more dollars? <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about that. I, I don't... I, the, <laughs> The tournament was moving slow, and I don't blame him for getting out of there. But, you know, yeah, it's, battling it out in the 1-5 bracket, mulliganing for Murex. It's yeah, not, not a killing good hourly your opponent. rate. Yeah, not killing your opponent just to get more Murex. Like, and listen, one chase dollar for whatever it's worth is worth a lot more than a dollar. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of pride points on the line here, and I love every bit of this. No, Chase is the type of person that I would make pay me in cash, especially, like, face-to-face, especially if it's a very small sum of money that he owes from, you know, something that's, like, kind of demeaning or whatever. 100%. Like, what if it was, like, $38 or something? I want exact change. I'm not returning any amount of money. I want it to be, like, documented. Yeah. Yeah. $38 worth of might tokens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, also, and then, you know, sign my might tokens, right? All 38 <laughs> of them, because I definitely acquired 38 tokens. I will say, Mirex seems to be a card that has overperformed in all places and probably is something that we should keep on our radar and explore in general and give a chance or at least an opportunity in a lot of different decks and a lot of different formats. I am a Mirex truther, so I am certainly there. Yeah, it's weird that clause of just like tapping for colored mana that first turn does wonders compared to Mutavolt. Yeah, it is It is not just like a colorless utility land. I, I think that that clause helps out so much in a lot of different ways in a lot of different decks. And those things are going to keep coming up, you know? So definitely something to keep in your back pocket. I went to order some more because, you know, standard season's coming up and they're $5. So I did not order more, but that's my fun story from this week. If we're ever the same tournament, I got plenty, dude, because I, I built uh, like all those domain decks for Dallas and stuff. And then I think at some point I also had to order another one because 
I was missing them maybe, but I have at least four. I certainly don't need that many. Yeah. So my fun tangent, and I, I won't derail us too much, but while you guys were playing the RC, I had a couple of friends over to hang out and watch the coverage. Um, and we were just like looking for decks to play. So I was like, oh, standard season's coming up. Wouldn't it be cool if we just like, you know, had a handful of standard decks built and we could just like play games on the kitchen table or whatever. So I spent the time, I spent, I think, $140, which is not a crazy amount of money. And I think I ordered like 250 cards. Oh, yeah. For Let's just go. like every single random standard card I could possibly get to build every deck for that like, you know, costed $2 or less. So that's my like secret plug for you both to come and spend a weekend hanging out or whatever. And that's my post baby life of like, you know, trick my friends into coming over, hanging out. And um, I'm going to replace football with, you know, kitchen table magic. Love do we, it. Do, do we know the format for SCG Hartford yet? Is it standard? They have not announced it. I would be shocked if it was standard. The last Star City they play, they did that was standard was a train wreck. Oh, it is modern. Nice. That's Confirmed. A week, I think it's a week before Denver, so that's actually great for us. Confirmed. Modern. Yep. Yeah, Cincy and Hartford are modern, and I will be at both. But I think the standard RCQ season starts in two or three weeks. It's in January, yeah. I have I have one locally on the twentieth that I know about because my friend messaged me. There might be more. So yeah, January fifteenth is the first one around here, somewhere in that range. So that makes sense and lines up. And at least from a f- conversations I've had with a few of the local stores around here, they're planning on running a lot more limited ones during this season, just because they're not super bullish on standard. Um, I kind of like the look of standard personally, but I will tell you, I'm also quite excited about the opportunity to play limited tournaments. So. Maybe one of the subtle tangential benefits of standard season is the revitalizing of limited magic. I, <laughs> that would be funny. It's like, oh, we promote standard season and people walk away being like, I love sealed deck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was excited to get to play sealed on Saturday for a round. That was cool. Um, do you want to talk about it? Was it actually fun? No, it was fun. It was really fun. Uh, but then I dropped. Can, then, can you tell me? I'm because I'm curious. Because I, I, how did the deck registration process work? Uh, it was effectively the same as at the limited RCQ I played last season, which you sit down. However, they sit you down. I think at the RCQ might might have been alphabetical. At this thing, it was just random, and then you both put your name on the player registering deck column because the packs that you open are the packs that you keep because there was a problem with this in the past where you would open up like a busted pool or like a $100 card or something, and then people would be sad that they had to pass it. So then they're like, let's figure out a way where you keep the packs that you open. Because, you know, obviously it's all random, right? It's like you could very easily just get like past a busted pool or a $100 card, but like it's hard to understand that when you've just opened the card in front of you. So uh, you take turns opening packs. So like, I will open my six packs while you sing across from me, watch me do it to make sure that I'm not adding any rares to my deck or whatever. And then we do that for each other. We pass pools, we register each other's pool, and then we pass back, build our decks, go time. So you open your packs and pass them to the person across from you to register. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's very logical. And I'm with you on the like, your odds of getting past busted cards are about the same as your odds of opening them. 
I it's say not about, about the same. It is the same. No, I say about the same because there is that one dingus that always drops from the tournament with his, you know, foil Tarmogoyf or whatever it is. Right. So, yeah, no, that's true. You're right. You're right. You're right. right. So about the same. You're right? right. Rounding errors of difference. But like the cost of doing this is what? Two extra minutes to like watch them open the packs one at a time. Yes. But I also think it's good because. OK. Hi. It promotes social interaction. No. Uh, well, yeah, it does do that. But, you know, that's both a pro and a con. So back in the day, I don't know how many of the like sealed deck. PTQ methods of cheating y'all have heard of or want to hear about, but There's I have, a lot. I have many. So one was, for example, to print off your own deck list from home, register your own pool, and then add it to the pool because there was like a non, like, instead of like, oh, open my packs, register my thing, you just find a way to like slyly take that off the table and put the other one back on. Yeah. On so like, so like, uh, this is like a lore and I don't know how much truth there is to this, but there is a Grand Prix that was talked about a lot where a Birds large of number of players did this. Oh, okay. No, they brought is... pre-registered pools, basically, and handed them in in the hopes of randomly getting them distributed back. Yeah. And the general logic was that, like, they're better players than average to begin with, so that, like, if the quality of the pools across the board goes up, it benefits them. Yeah. So, you know... That is one way to go about things. And then this basically just gets rid of that, right? Because if at some point someone questions the legitimacy of your deck, you go back and ask that person, like, hey, do you remember them having, you know, like four Masticores or whatever? And they're just like, uh, no. And it's like, okay, get out. Yeah, I would probably remember that. Yeah. Yeah, probably. It's it's not entirely reliable because, like, who the hell who the hell remembers, like, what the person across from you like opened or whatever. It's not a lot, but like when there are outliers where it's like, you know, there's a bone horror Dracosaur and like a bunch of other mythics or whatever. It's like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that wasn't there. You know? Yeah. Did they open six rares in the same color? Right. Like, yeah, you, you yeah. would remember that. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I, I think that this is the least amount of work because before it would be like, oh, the judges collect all the pools and then they pass them out or whatever. Like this is just super simple. And requires the least amount of steps and checks a lot of the boxes and it's awesome. I like it. Yeah. I it's my second favorite. My favorite will always be the extra $20 I paid for the VIP registration. True. Which was nope. the best $20 I've ever spent to this yeah. day still. No, you're right. I dude, that's been so long since I played in one of those. I forgot those existed. Yeah, nothing beat it. Anyway, LCQ experience, Matt, go. Yeah, so um I mean aside from aside from your snafu, like you know, my tournament I I guess ran smoothly. I mean it wasn't it wasn't quick and we they like every round had us get up and move to a different set of tables somewhere else in the hall, following the judge around like a you know, school children following the line leader. Yep. Um, but but aside from that, you know, it, it went fine. Um, you know, I ended up I ended up registering the Drake stack, sit down, super excited to play around one. You're behind me, you know, watching me watching oh, me God. play. Dave has not heard <laughs> this yet, right? <laughs> I don't think Dave has heard this. This is um, incredible. Dave, pay attention. My my opponent, my opponent plays. I, I, I think I play a sleight of hand on turn one. Um my opponent plays land. 
I play a land and pass. Opponent plays a ledger shredder. I end of turn, consider. I see a land. I think about it for a little while, decide to put it in the graveyard. And then I'm like, oh man, I think I just turned off my fiery impulse. And then I'm like, wait a second. No, I have the sleight of hand from last turn. And then I just immediately cast the fiery impulse. <laughs> so it resolves. No, no. no. Oppo- opponent connives, draw goes to draw their card. As they're doing it, Matt turns around, looks up at me, gives me gives me this look, like, kind of like, what have I done? And also, I'm so mad at myself. And like, you know, why am I here? Like a combination of that sort of things. There was a lot of emotion there, and then quickly turns back to his match, and I just walk away. <laughs> I know the exact look that you're describing. I can imagine okay. it. I've seen it. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Little kid that somebody stole their cookie. So in that moment, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to I'm just going to pick up my cards and I'm going to go to the airport. Like I'm done. You know, I like cool, I I gave it the old college try. Turn 2 around 1. That's just, you know, just, it's just not my weekend. Yeah. Um, But, but I decide to tough it out. I lose like a really, really close game one that obviously would have, would have been nice if they didn't have a ledger <laughs> shredder. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's blue red Phoenix. Um, g- go to sideboard games, manage to win. Um, You know, I forget exactly how game one played out, but my opponent, my opponent didn't pick up on the fact that I was Drake's instead of Phoenix. I don't know whether it was like I just didn't play anything that would have indicated that or whether it was just, you know, not not super obvious. So got to play the little like freebie sideboard game where they have a bunch of cards that aren't super valuable. Um and then and then, you know, won game three and and I think basically just won for the most part every game uh in until the finals of the lcq but um yeah i don't know it was it was certainly a little bit of a wake-up call of like i you know i don't know i compared it to i think there's a story um that that luis likes to tell about you know playing a thought seize on turn two and then just forgetting to play a second land like that's kind of what this moment felt like to me yeah of like i cannot believe i just did that and yeah, it's you, just like you went to bed pretty early. We got up, had a nice breakfast. You had at least two coffees. Yeah, I, like there was no, there was, there was, there was no reason for me to be that sloppy. Yeah, I think it was worth it. I think it was the quickest way possible to knock off all the rust. It's just like the ultimate, like Saito double smacking your face. You're just, yes. like, you know, you're just in it. And what I will say about Matt, for those that don't know of like he plays his best magic when he's mad. So, this is probably a good thing. Yeah, I definitely I mean it it, it definitely stuck with me all day. Um and I didn't bring it up. I brought it up. You don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, it ain't just, leaving. He, he knows that I know. <laughs> and I'm just like, "Oh, you won. Good job." Like Yeah, the up. first thing I the first thing I did after that match finish was finish was call chase and tell him and be like you would you would not believe what i just did 
Uh, it's I funny am, because I'm, your first reaction was that you shut the fiery impulse off, which is actually turned out to be true. Yeah. <laughs> if they had a spell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was so happy that I was there just because, like, it's... It's not like, oh, I'm happy that I watched my friend, like, fuck up or whatever. But it was just a, a big moment. And I was I was happy that I was there to witness it. All the feels. Because, like, you, you tell it to me later, and it's, it's just not as as good. Like, I don't, I don't feel it as much. I don't understand the impact of the situation. But Matt just shooting me that look for a split second, I was just like, okay. I, I know where we're at now. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a big wake up call. Um, you know, obviously glad it didn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to say even like punish me. Cause like w- whatever, right? Like you make mistakes in magic and you lose matches because of it. But the LCQs feel a little bit different because you're also up against this time pressure of like, they stopped firing at five o'clock and having to lose round one go register for another one it doesn't it doesn't cost me twenty dollars and a chance at winning a round it costs me two hours and that's that's the most valuable currency on lcq day yeah i i certainly felt that especially when i lost my like round four and it was like 440 or something and i wanted to change cards in my deck slightly you know and it's like i was i was feeling that time pressure yeah you had about the worst possible first rcq experience you can ever have multiple delays lose late in it just all of it however i lost run one of the next one i was just like freedom (laughs) yeah thank you my opponent beat the crap out of me and i was very appreciative of that fact because, like, if I lose, you know, the finals of that one or something, that's max pain right there, right? Yeah. So, do we think the hypothesis of Drake's being good against Phoenix, Rakdos, and Amelia is true? Do we still stand behind that? I think Matt should speak to that, seeing as how he won his LCQ and actually played the RC and certainly played more rounds than I did. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so I think structurally, what are the benefits of Drake's? Um, I, I think, I think Amalia is probably a really interesting place to start. Um, and the reason for that is that my opinion, at least, is that your threats are kind of a liability in that matchup. Um, you know, the easiest way to lose to them is to draw too many things that don't interact with their combo and kind of just get run over. Um, And so, you know, I think the sort of whole Phoenix package in some ways is a liability against Somalia. Um, And so really the way you want to play that matchup from, from a Phoenix or a Drake stack is just be all lightning bolts and treasure cruises and don't ever let them get their thing going and you'll eventually find a way to mop up and win um 
And so I think I think that's I think plus one in the Drake's column there. Um R- Rakdos is a little more interesting. Um the way the Rakdos decks have evolved in light of Copter is that the decks are more focused on card filtering and card selection rather than they are pure card advantage. Um, you know, before Phoenix stacks or or Drake stacks would kind of the Rakdos stacks even in game one would be able to play the long game with you. They'd remove your stuff, they'd get a bank buster going, they'd draw some cards, they'd mess with your graveyard a little bit. Um but but they don't they don't really have that angle anymore. And for the most part in the game ones, you can kind of just bury them with treasure cruise eventually. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't hurt the matchup that that a lot of those decks are a little bit lighter on Shieldred and a little bit lighter on Graveyard Trespasser than they used to be. Yeah, I was going to um, say too that in addition to doing filtering instead of card advantage, they're also cutting on a lot of just their raw power too. You see fewer Shieldreds, you see some with like Gigantha, no Shieldred too, and that certainly makes your job a lot easier. Yeah, and and um while a great card in the format smuggler's copter is at its worst against the fiery impulse and flying blocker stack agreed um and in in fact most most i think uh prepared rakdos players who i talked to this weekend were were boarding out their copters against phoenix and and similar decks which i think is is pretty smart so overall, how how much of an edge, if any, do you think that Drake's v Rakdos has versus the Phoenix side of things? I I think that I think that Drake's is is meaningfully better uh, in that matchup. I think that um, you know Fable and Crackling Drake are are you know threats that also provide some amount of card advantage and that just sort of plays into your whole game plan of you know you're this landlight deck with treasure cruises like you will just eventually out card people um and the fact that your win condition doesn't randomly get hosed by by whatever graveyard hate they have i think is is a pretty big benefit um and then when you go to sideboarding you put them in the same situation of they can bring in graveyard hate, but it really only hits treasure crews. And I think that's an exchange that for the most part, you're happy with taking either side of. If they draw too much graveyard hate, you'll just beat them with normal cards because they they kind of took a mulligan by having a card that doesn't really do much. Um, but but if they don't, then your treasure cruises are all turned on and and you win that way. So I think I think there's some real structural advantages against the way the Rakdos decks are built right now. Yeah, and, then, and yeah, what about these at Mirror? I guess I I think Drake's is a little behind. Um, and uh, at least in game one, a- and so it, it's interesting. I don't know that I. I realized that immediately. I played some matches where I was beating Phoenix and it felt it felt good. Um I think there's two things that that can flip it towards Phoenix, one of which is 
the more of the like galvanic iteration trespass stuff they have going on, the harder the mashup gets. Yeah. Um, because really, really game one is just about who has the most busted treasure cruise draw. And the the Phoenix deck is certainly better at doing that, right? They have picklock prankster, they have extra cantrips, they have iteration. So they are just more consistent at treasure cruising and more and their treasure cruises are more powerful when they cast them. Um, the flip side of that is if you told me that both players mulligan to six or five, I would take the Drake deck because you just have more individually powerful cards. Um, I think sideboarding probably favors Drake's a little bit because people have graveyard hate, and that's kind of the whole point of the fable Drake thing in the sideboard of the Phoenix deck to begin with. And you have a lot more counter magic to interact with the broken treasure cruise draws, so they don't happen as much. Um, but I'm not sure Drake's is ahead enough in game two and three to make up for the amount that it's behind in game one. Fair. I, I basically looked at it like they are pigeonholed into being the beatdown deck. And even if they were doing cruise stuff like they cruise a turn before me maybe their second cruise happens like a turn or two before my second cruise that is fine as long as i draw enough like blitzes and torches to actually kill the phoenixes because eventually you're going to stick a crackling drake and they're probably going to lose to it but then the the trespass iteration package does throw everything off because if they combine those two you almost certainly lose yeah, I think I think my experience for the most part was they they're a little bit better ca at casting the first cruise and that helps them get to whatever their end game is, whether it's iteration and a second cruise and then they just have a bunch of phoenixes and two lightning axes and they just kind of have it all rolled up even if you do get a drink going. Um that's that's kind of what that's kind of what the games felt like to me at least. But did you play against people that did not have iteration? Because th that was like most of the list that I was seeing too, at least online. And then you get to the RC and it seemed like a lot of people had one and one, which obviously makes things a lot worse. But leading up to it, I didn't think that many people were going to have it. Yeah, I think I think everyone I played against had iteration. I don't know about Trespass for sure. Um, some people definitely had Trespass. I know that the... Uh... I don't know, for lack of a better word, the like Zoomer testing group had, I think, two iteration, two trespass. Yeah, so we're cooked. Yeah. Yeah, that is um that that that's gonna tilt it pretty far in their direction, I think. Yeah, it's all about who has inevitability, right? And that really does change the equation quite a bit. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 about inevitability and, and uh, you know, a lot of the games do get washed up in the variance of, like I said, whoever sticks a cruise on turn three or four or whatever. Um, but they're, yeah, they're a little bit, they're a little bit better at doing that. And the composition of the rest of the deck doesn't matter all that much after that point. So would you do it again? Kind of sounds like you answered that before or you're just like, yeah, I'll fly to LCQ, but like 
your experience was was good enough and everything and as long as the people are there it sounds good yeah i would do it i mean i'm gonna i'm already doing it again i'm going i'm going to denver and i don't currently have an invite uh okay Um, maybe he's he's doing it again i think the question is would you do drake's again no that's a fair question do you think drake's is a deck going forward i think i think drake's is a deck going forward um i think it is in terms of its good matchups and its bad matchups probably not that appreciably different from phoenix it feels a little bit like a maybe higher floor lower ceiling version of phoenix um you know if there's a week where people are ratchet really ratcheting up the graveyard hate i I think that's a good time to a good time to play drakes um i think i would rather play drakes into blue white control than phoenix so in light of in light of the tournament's winner, I, I think I think yeah, there there's there's an argument for Drake's for sure. So you beat me to the punch because I think that matchup is the most interesting one, and to me, that's the biggest surprise of the weekend is how well Blue White Control did. And again, smaller sample size, but still a thirteen hundred person tournament. Phoenix against Blue White had a fifth a sixty two percent win rate. So Phoenix did really well on the weekend largely on the back of a strong blue-white control matchup. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you think that Drake's is slightly favored when I think the trespass stuff that kind of dominates the matchup in the Phoenix-Drake side also sort of has the same effect if we're talking like Phoenix versus blue-white. Yeah, almost like the slower the format gets, the better that the trespass package gets. Yeah. And I, I, I get what you're saying where it's like individually, you'd probably rather have like fable and crackling Drake against blue white, which are just individually powerful cards versus, I don't know, a bunch of like small ball pick lock prankster things. But if all you're trying to do is get to trespass, I think I would rather have that in my deck. If I were playing against blue white, than like, any other number of you know mythic rares or whatever. I, I think that's I think that's true if you're playing best of one. Um, but you know the the blue white decks they have a lot of rest in pieces. They have you know potentially Narset's reversal. They have a bunch of ways to interact with with that stuff on the stack, and I I think you end up in a spot where. It's like, okay, I have all these removal spells that I have to cut, but I also have to sideboard out some amount of my graveyard stuff so I don't get hosed by rest in peace. And I think it's I think it's really hard to get to like a 60 card post sideboard configuration that you're happy about in Phoenix when you when that's the route you take. Um, okay. Let, let me ask you a crazier question. Like, can you play Drakes with with, with iteration and trespass? Possibly. Uh, I, I don't see why not. I mean, obviously, one of the weaker aspects of the Drake stack is drawing a bunch of like three and four mana cards and cards with Delve. And uh, that was the reason why the initial list that I submitted had three Crackling Drakes. And then it was like, oh, I, I kind of just felt like I needed the fourth one despite the issues it presents. So then you're talking about 
including at least, you know, one iteration and a trespass. Like it is technically doable. I don't know if you want to do it, but it it sort of solves the problem, but not when we're already talking about how Phoenix is more efficient at cruising and then that leads to them building towards this trespass endgame faster than you are anyway, right? So you would kind of need a way to interrupt theirs in order to make yours even relevant. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think the bigger the bigger point to be making here is uh in if you're expecting a lot of blue white control, play some blue red treasure cruise. That's fair. But like what is what is the plan against rest in peace though? I imagine as a, as a Phoenix player? Yeah, because I imagine that your your win rate is largely going to come off of your delve cards. And if you're saying that like the trespass thing doesn't necessarily give Phoenix equity in the matchup because rest in peace, so like maybe Drake's is better there. Does that mean that Phoenix is winning somehow despite there being rest in peace in play in a lot of the games? And if so, like how is that happening? Does that make sense? Yeah, I my guess, and and again, you know, all the lists are a little different. And I, you know, I played the Phoenix deck that I was playing had three Fable and two Drake in the sideboard. So you get to you get to juke the graveyard hate a little bit with those cards. Um, you know, you get to bring in a bunch of counter magic, some of which is able to interact with rest in peace on the stack. Um, you know, some of which is, you know, okay, they play a rest in peace and you have a fable Drake draw, so they've kind of mulliganed, and then you have some counter magic, and that's enough to that's enough to close the game out. Um my suspicion when when looking at this win rate matrix is that Phoenix was probably winning just a really, really large number of the game ones. And then that, you know, if you're if you're winning enough of the game ones, you can be you can be 45% post-board with a good sideboard plan and still win the match a lot of the time. Yeah, fair. And I don't I don't think that Drake's necessarily is going to win a lot of the game ones without trespass stuff. No, I think I think it's I think it's I think you're you're probably not much more than 50-50 in game 1. Um and you're you're I I think you're from the Drake side re- reasonably favored in the post board games enough that that it's still still a good matchup and something I'd be happy to play against pretty regularly. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. It's, especially, it's interesting, but also I was pretty excited to just get home and like throw my Pioneer cards in a corner and not touch them for a while. So, yeah, we're never playing Pioneer again, right? Well, not again, but for at least six months. Is uh, standard season and then modern season? Is that right? Well, we have modern RC and then standard season. And if they follow suit, it'll be standard RC. Like standard season will lead into standard RC. Yeah. So those are the two formats we're playing. So we it'll be a long time before we can answer what I think is one of the most fundamental questions that I still have about Pioneer, which is that is Blue White Control a playable deck? Because I still can't for the life of me figure it out. No, it's certainly playable. Like 
over over the last year or so, like my main issue with the deck was that it was just clunky. And over the last year or so, they've gotten a lot of really good two mana interaction that made it so that you don't fall behind on specifically that turn versus leaning on something like sensor or whatever. Yeah. Fate, fateful absence. And the format is also in a place now where lockdown is one of the best cards in the format and they get to play four. Yep. That's fair. That's fair. And like, listen, I think blue white was definitely the deck to play for this past weekend, looking back on it. And I think that's pretty clear. Um, but I also remember the story from like the RC, I think it was two seasons ago, the last pioneer RC where there was like the one in Europe where there was some stupid number of blue white decks, not a single one of them made day two. <laughs> right. So like, it feels like blue white has been the story or driving the narrative of these RCs, both on the, it was the deck to play and it was a disastrous trap. It is one or the other very rarely and in between. So to those that played it the last time and not this time, condolences, right? But um, yeah, I'm excited to not think or talk too much about Pioneer, even though it does look like it's in a much better spot than it has been in a very long time. I enjoyed my time. Part of it was the deck I was playing, but also the matchups all had play to them. You know, it wasn't... I mean, this would have especially been true had Appraiser been legal, but the games with and against Mono Green are not particularly fun because you're you're just kind of like doing your thing, and if they can stop it, cool. We we try again, and also it's really hard to stop. So whatever. But yeah, if if the top four decks are like blue white, is it? Rakdos and Amalia, it's like all of those decks have a bunch of interaction in them. That's great. Yeah, and the matchups against each other are really fun to play. So yeah, exactly. What I think everyone slept on, us included, was that the single biggest change to Pioneer was actually Amalia, not any of the bands. Well, it certainly cemented my deck choice where Drake's was basically Phoenix that got to play Grafdigger's Cage. Yep. You know? And I, I think cage went a long way to making sure that a lot of the decks that I was working on had a good Amalia matchup and you see like Amalia's win percentage is like 56.7 like that's very good uh, especially because you know new deck probably unrefined but also a lot of people were sort of sleeping on it and uh, yeah I, I respected the hell out of it I thought it was going to be one of the three biggest ones and I certainly felt like it it wasn't this thing where uh, if I just put a bunch of spot removal in my deck, like it's going to be easy. I've also felt like, well, I need to like counter their thing or like have this lock piece in play like cage or uh, as we found out later, like weathered runestone is a card that exists and like maybe was a thing that we should have been playing. Who knows? But yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I you, you need help. The deck is good. I'm always very good. The deck's great, and it, the thing I like most about it is it just demands interaction. And I think the problem with the other combo decks that existed in Pioneer for the longest time is the most effective way to beat them was to ignore them and kill them. Yeah, like Lotus Field. Like Lotus Field. And if you look at the win rate spread of Amalia, any of the decks that are trying to ignore it and just do their own thing got crushed. Well, they're threatening a turn three kill, man. Like I, I get it. I'm just saying, like, tough. I think that's exactly the thing the format needed. It just like demands people interact with it, and if you do, you can beat it. But there was only one deck that posted a positive win rate against Amalia, and it was Blue Eye Control. Damn. 
yeah, I thought that was interesting. I was I was looking at this win rate matrix, um, and Amalia won sixty percent of its matches against Is It Phoenix, um, which I definitely I definitely feel like we were in a better spot than that with the Drake's version. Way better, partially due to Grafdigger's cage. I think partially just due to having less less of kind of the the random garbage around the edges that the phoenix decks deck has and like we we could we could essentially be a deck against them that was i think my my post sideboard deck uh against amalia was four ledger shredder two crackling drake and then just a pile of interaction yeah and in card drawing yep sounds like um, sounds like blue white flash blue white red flash the thing that's the thing that is really interesting that I would love to see about this win rate matrix would be the difference in the performance between the Amalia decks that had uh that had Knight Errant and those that did not, because the Knight Errant looks great. I agree. And I think the people who played that version of the deck were really smart and it looks a lot better to me than either the the versions that were like really heavy on collected company or really heavy on on return of the ranks um and so and and obviously the graft diggers cages are worse against are worse against those versions too right so i think uh i think there's still a lot of room to grow with amalia and and there were already some people on week one who were adapting to the ways that they thought that people were going to try to be fighting them um but my suspicion would be that the night version outperformed the other versions by a good amount. All right. So re- real quick, how did the RC itself go for you? I, uh, I, it started off good. I was, I was five and one at one point, um, with my only loss being uh, a match to Rakdos where I, I kept my deck kind of just didn't do anything. Um, and then the wheels wheels fell off at that point. I lost to Phoenix. I lost to Enigmatic Incarnation. Um, I lost a, a win and in today two to to Rakdos um, to to a friend who ended up actually uh, shout out to Sky like winning all of the rounds for the rest of the tournament and queuing for the PT. Uh, so that's like about as good an outcome as you can expect for the person who knocks you out of the tournament to do. Yeah, and um, I mean, they started 03, right? Yeah, the yeah, the classic classic 03 to 113. Um unreal. Which is yeah, uh, you know, that that takes some uh some mental fortitude in and of itself to just even like especially <laughs> especially in that room uh being willing to stick it out for another 7 hours is impressive. Yeah, most people I mean, aren't even in the tournament still in round 4. <laughs> no no it was it was a it was a brutal i say seven hours it's seven rounds more like 10 hours um but yeah so uh you know wheels fell off a little bit at the end but it was a good tournament um and you know i don't know it felt it felt like playing a grand prix which i don't love that i have to qualify for for a grand prix um but I always liked playing in Grand Prix, so if they if they keep offering them, I will I will find a way to play in them. Yo, Fair. this was a Grand Prix with a thirty thousand dollar first place prize, 
which I just want to call out for a second. Like, I think the Pro Tour is only 40 grand. Yeah, the money for these is certainly good, at least at the very, very top, where I also don't think that that should be the case necessarily. You know, I feel like the payout should probably be a little bit flatter, especially when you're talking about like a 1300 person tournament. And it's just like, you know, four people have good paydays or something. A hundred percent, especially when you consider the top two get world's invites. Yeah, which is also a lot of equity and um, I don't know. I guess the the world stuff doesn't like qualify you for anything. So it's not really the TRGR thing, but it is in terms of actual equity, monetary equity. Yeah, I feel like th- given the size of these tournaments that the structure and the prize payout deserves revisiting. Yeah, so um I guess I guess sort of on that on that topic, right? So this tournament was uh 1300 people. Um you know, great prize pool, 30,000 to first place, paid out the world's invites, everything else. Um uh the Grand Prix in Baltimore where uh, I beat Dave in the finals was 1500 people. Um, and I think first prize for that tournament was thirty five hundred bucks. Uh, so, so, so things have come a little bit. A and little we didn't bit split. Of... We didn't split for the record. Why not? I don't split. Oh, work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt plays. There's two things you need to know about Matt. He plays his best magic when he's angry, and he's incredibly stubborn. Well, um, I I did kind of find that out this weekend. There is, uh, this is a this is a throwback name. There's a Jeff Garza quote, um, that I I live by, right? Which I, I think, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was uh, negotiating a split at the final table of a big poker tournament. Yeah, it was the Sunday um, like millionaire maker poker tournament. Yeah, yeah, on on Poker Stars back when that was the thing you could do. Um, and uh, his his response to the split request was, "I play for my opponent's tears." Um, and not that I want my opponents to cry because I don't, but uh, I, I I the fun in all of this for me is competing and like splitting kind of just takes that away. Yeah, I definitely feel like once you split top eight, there is a lot of folks who are then not playing their best. That yeah, Garza and, quote's and, legendary and lives in our little small friend group to this day quite a bit. So there's quite a bit of lore there. Yeah, I mean, you threw a Garza quote at me too. Was this the $5 NEV one? Well, it was the, like, if I, yeah, I have to think about it. For more than five minutes, yeah. Or if it costs f- less than $5, that thinking about it costs me more money than just buying it. Yep. Yeah. And so for those that don't know, Garza was a Boston area magic player who at a very young age was incredibly successful and did very well at magic and quickly moved on to different things, had a successful poker career and whatever. But he had a large amount of influence over quite a bit of the younger players at the time that came up in the same JSS era. Definitely somebody we wish was still around more in the magic world. What do you think you would have to do to convince him to play a tournament? I feel like, so more than anything, I, I feel like 
and honestly, Jeff reminds me a little bit of Matt. And I don't, Matt, I don't, I don't think your paths ever crossed too much. But like my instinct, I was close friends with both of them at different points. And they both like played with a chip on their shoulder and something to prove. And that was the biggest thing for both of them. And I feel like the reason Jeff moved on from Magic was he had this incredibly successful like nine month stretch where he won JSS Nationals, moved on to the pro level scene, won a Grand Prix, top 16 to Pro Tour, like all within like a four month stretch. And he just did it. He did it. He proved it to himself that he could. And then he was just done. He's like, I beat the game. I did it. I'm finished. And he moved on to the next thing, the next challenge, right? So I feel like getting him to come back is all about like pitching some amount of hill that he hasn't climbed mm. or some challenge that he hasn't accomplished. That makes sense. But I also don't think I can do that in good faith. Because it's like, but part of my rationale for wanting him to come back is that I sort of know that he would crush it, you know? Oh, he would without a doubt. So it's just like, where's where's the challenge there? Where is the 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 opportunity to actually uh, have this hurdle in front of him, this chance to like prove himself, you know? Yeah, his dad is a chemist, from if memory serves me correctly. So we used to have we used to joke that if Jeff didn't learn how to play cards, he would have cured cancer. Oh yeah, right. Just like you know, he was intelligent and smart and successful at basically anything he touched, and it was unfortunate that, that was magic and poker for the rest of humanity. <laughs> well, you know, magic introduced him to poker. There's a lot of money in poker, and now maybe you know, there's still time to cure cancer. Yeah, of my, I'll tell a quick other Jeff story just quickly because I love it. Please, do. Um, he was a really big believer in EV. And said that the second he he was a big proponent of if if something was more like one percent in your favor, you should bet at everything. And this like premise or this notion, this like total like uh, he basically ignored the risks or the downsides associated with this. He he got called out in the final after finishing a poker tournament in an IRL poker tournament. The person that he beat called him out. And said, "Let's flip a coin right now. Fifty thousand dollars versus fifty thousand and one. And the idea is, if you have one dollar extra on one side in a coin flip, he said he would bet it all every time, and he did it three he times. Won. So they flipped it. They flipped it once. He won. They flipped again. He lost. They flipped a third time. He won. And he walked away. But that whole like that 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 real that like gaming theory really sticks with me to this day." of he had this like fearless mentality of the second things were a tiny bit in his favor. He was willing to bet it all. He didn't care what the consequences were. So that theory only matters if you get a lot of chances to do that. 100%. There's a million flaws with it. And for whatever it's worth, this is a theory that also only works when you're like 20 years old. Yes. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that that he said where it's like, you know, if it if it if he has to think about it for five minutes, he just buys it because like he could be making more playing poker or whatever instead of thinking about it. It's just like all, all of those are things where it's just like, well, clearly you have money already. You know, so it's like these are good uh, phrases or whatever for pseudo rich people to live by. Yeah, these are all concepts that I think a lot of people can learn from. They are never anything I would ever recommend anyone else ever does. Yeah. Right? 
Um, and I, I think you're spot on of they all come from a place of fortune, right? And if you're not in a position that's as well off as that, it, it just doesn't apply. And I, I would argue that even if you are, you know, reasonably well off, that like taking risks or chances like this is just like not exactly what you should be doing, right? He took these like basic concepts to the absolute extreme. And that was just kind of how he operated. Well, let's let's take that back to magic a little bit for a second, because I think one thing I, I know that I've talked to the two of you about is the idea that like, you know, you you can look at like a matchup grid or whatever, but like playing the deck that has the best average win rate across the expected metagame or whatever is not always the right choice for every person. Like Dave, I know you're a big believer in this. Just like play, play the deck that is the right deck for you. And I think that it sounds like sort of the the robotic attitude of someone like Jeff would be like, oh yeah, like I I'm obligated to play mono green because it's fifty three percent instead of fifty two percent or whatever. Yeah. And then there's someone like me who's like, nah, I'm just I'm just gonna do what feels right and like maybe maybe mathematic and like it's funny because my day job is very analytical and and focused on that type of thing but in magic it's like yeah you don't get you don't get to run the simulation over and over and over again you get to do it once and in order to win a tournament you need to win multiple standard deviations above like the average win rate right to win a first place you need to get you need to win 85 percent of your matches and the best players in the world win what 62 so like (laughs) at some point does do the win rates really even matter touche yeah i I think that's completely fair i mean i also think in the the broader scope of this conversation it just depends on what your goals are like gars is maxing for ev uh you guys if you have limited chances to play magic it's you know they've you want to spend your three times a year playing magic, playing mono green and being miserable. That's probably not the ideal use of your time either. So, Hey, Bobby well... would be offended by that. Well, I'm saying you two specifically, not Bobby. Like, bo- That's the thing that Bobby wants to do. That's fair. That's Matt playing his blue red deck. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like for whatever it's worth, I think Matt and I are similar in this is like the biggest thing that draws me to magic is I want to compete. I don't necessarily want to compete necessarily at all costs. That's not my only priority or my only goal. It is the first one, though. So I'm willing to make some sacrifices. I put my blue-white-red flash deck down to play Hexproof one time. It was the right thing to do. I still regret it. But, um, yeah, competing to me is the biggest draw. Well, Matthew, do you want to sign us out? Uh, I, I, I will, um, I, I don't, I don't know all of the, all of the routines, um, but, uh, oh, you know, you, you never listen to the end. So this is awkward. Thank Thank you for listening to the, the Jerry T podcast with Dude, Dave I, Shields. I've never said this before in my life. You can just say game or that's game, whatever you want to do. Uh, hey, see you soon because you're going to be back. I, I, I will be back. Um, for Dave's paternity leave and uh, that's game.
Good luck.